Um, welcome to the London Aesthetics Forum, uh, a forum that is generously supported by the British Society of Aesthetics. Um, it is a great pleasure to have Catherine Abel here with us today. Uh, Catherine is a lecturer in philosophy at the University of Manchester. Uh, earlier, she held uh, lecturing positions at Macquarie University and the University of Adelaide. She has also been a visiting scholar at the University of British Columbia and the University of Sydney. Catherine has published many articles related to the issue of uh, pictorial and cinematic representation, and recently she has um, co-edited a very interesting book uh, called Philosophical Perspective on Depiction. Uh, the topic of Catherine's talk today, which also promising, promises to be very interesting, is fiction making. Um, thanks for having me to talk. This is um, a paper that's very much work in progress, and I'm sure there are lots of problems with it, but my aim um, today is to get your help in discovering what those problems are. So my purpose is to give an account of the act of fiction-making, the nature of the act that authors engage with, engage in when they produce works of fiction, and I guess my main contention is that it can solve a whole lot of other philosophical problems it can shed light on a whole lot of other philosophical problems about fiction if we get our account of the act of fiction-making correct. Um, and the handout that you've got here is just setting out my main um, claims so, so to help you put you in a better position to criticise them. Okay, so there are a lot of interrelated um, philosophical issues about fiction. So firstly, there's the issue of the nature of fiction. What distinguishes a work of fiction from work of non-fiction. Um, secondly, there's the, and the issue of the semantics of fictional discourse. So, uh, in particular, there's the issue of what um, the semantics of fictional names are um, when authors use them um, to, in producing works of fiction. Then there's a very similar issue, the semantics of discourse about fiction. So when we say things like Sherlock Holmes is a fictional character created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, what does the name Sherlock Holmes contribute? What's the meaning of that name? Um, now, obviously, the answer you give to those questions will depend partly on whether or not you think fictional characters exist and, if you do, on what sorts of things you think there are. So there's the issue of the existence and nature of fictional characters. Um, then there's the issue of the accuracy of fiction-related discourse. So we want to make a wide variety of different claims about fiction and to explain um, and claims using fictional names. To explain how those um, claims can be meaningful is not necessarily to tell us which of those claims are true and which of them are false. Um, so that's a further issue. And then related, there's the issue of narrative content. So we think there are certain true, well, certain claims we can make, such as Sherlock Holmes is cleverer than Watson, that seem to be at least true in the, store, in, the sh in the Sherlock Holmes stories, but they're not explicitly represented by the st story. So they never, the stories never explicitly say Sherlock Holmes is cleverer than Watson. So what makes that true according to the story? So that's a further issue. So I hope to have something to say about all of these issues. Um, so I'm gonna, first thing I'm going to take them in turn and try and give a very rough overview of um, what existing theorists or current theorists say about these issues, existing theories, and give some sense of where they get into trouble and their relative demerits uh, and merits. Um, this is partly to motivate my own what a positive account. I don't think I have anything particularly new critical to say, so my emphasis in this paper is very much on proposing my own solution um, to these problems. Okay, so first let's take what um, people have had to say about the nature of fiction. Some people try and explain what distinguishes works of fiction from works of non-fiction by appeal to the function of works of fiction. So Kendall Walton claims that um, works of fiction are props that prescribe acts of make-believe. So there are features of the actual work of fiction that prescribe, that dictate that we ought to make-believe certain things, just as in the context of a child's game of make-believe, according to which tree stumps count as bears, the discovery um, of a stump prescribes that we make-believe that there is a bear there. 
Okay, so actual features of a work of fiction prescribe certain make-beliefs. Other people appeal, like I'm going to, to the act by which works of fiction are produced. So Searle, for example, says that authors, when they produce works of fiction, do not actually perform elocutionary acts. Rather, they pretend to perform elocutionary acts, largely assertions. Okay, so fiction-making involves pretend assertions, according to Searle. Um, and so works of fiction are pretend assertions. Um, Greg Curry um, says, by contrast, that rather than pretending to perform an elocutionary act, fiction makers actually perform a distinctive type um, of elocutionary act, namely they invite readers to make believe certain things. Okay, so that's what people have to say about the nature of fiction. Let's see how this relates to the issue of the semantics of fictional discourse. Um, because Sell said, says that fiction or authors um, merely pretend to, to assert things, we can, he can say they merely pretend to refer to things, so there's no problem um, of, of reference here. He can avoid that problem. Whereas Curry, because he, he says that um, authors actually perform the elocutionary act of inviting people to make believe, has the problem of explaining what semantic contrib contribution of fictional names are, is in fictional discourse. Okay, it seems like in inviting uh, us to make believe something about Sherlock Holmes, um, Arthur Conan Doyle is referring to, sh to some thing, Sherlock Holmes. But Curry wants to deny um, that fictional names refer. Rather, he says that in fictional discourse, they function as bound variables. So to work out what, the con what we're being invited to make believe, what a reader needs to be able to do is to pick out what Curry calls the qualitative worlds of a story. So these are just stories, or sorry, worlds in which there's a fictional author who is telling us true stories about people in that world. So to understand the contribution of a fictional name is just to be able to um, grasp the qualitative worlds of the story. Um, but an alternative approach to explaining the semantics of fictional discourse is to give a realist account and say, well, fictional names refer to fictional characters. And that raises the question, of course, of what kinds of things are fictional characters. Um, okay, let's take the third issue of the semantics of discourse about fiction. This comes apart a bit from the um, issue of the semantics of fictional discourse because such discourse is apparently serious. So when I say Sherlock Holmes is a fictional character created by Conan Doyle, I don't seem to be pretending to assert anything. Really, I am actually asserting something about a fictional character. Um, so this is a problem for pretense views. Um, okay, so you can have an anti-realist account. You can deny that there are such things of, as, as fictional characters. And like Walton claimed that discourse about fiction is part... When we engage in discourse about fiction we engage in unofficial games of make-believe. Okay, so there's a, a game of make-believe in which there is this fictional character, Sherlock Holmes, who was created by Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, but I think there's a problem with this approach. And the problem is that pretend looks to be uh, an intentional verb. That is, as Searle puts it, one can't truly be said to have pretended to do something unless one intended to pretend to do it. Um, and it looks to me like when I say Sherlock Holmes is a fictional character, I'm not intending to pretend anything. I'm, I take myself to be engaged in entirely serious discourse. Okay, another option um, is Curry's... And look that, notice that Curry cannot say that um, fictional names function as bound variables in discourse about fiction, because when I say that Sherlock Holmes is a character created by Arthur Conan Doyle, I'm referring to a particular character. So he has to give a separate account of it. Um, 
he says that in these contexts, fictional names function as disguised definite descriptions, where the, the correct description is provided by the story at issue. Um, okay, and another approach here is to say, be realist about fictional characters and say, along with um, Searle and Amy Thomason, that fictional discourse actually has the result of creating fictional characters um, to which um, we can then refer in our discourse about fiction. And then there's the problem about how, how, how does fictional discourse create fictional characters. Okay, and how one answers this... Oh, sorry. How one answers this problem depends very much on what one thinks fictional characters are. Okay, and so among realists, we can distinguish at least two kinds of accounts. Firstly, there are broadly Minongian accounts, uh, which hold that fictional characters are non-existent eternal abstract entities with properties like being a detective in the case of Sherlock Holmes. So Sherlock Holmes has all the properties ascribed to him in the story but just lacks the property of existence. Um, so on this kind of account, fictional characters are not the kinds of things that can be brought into existence by acts of fiction making, rather they could be discovered by fiction makers. Um, Okay, Amy Thomason has a different kind of account. <coughs> she says that fictional characters are contingent, abstract cultural artefacts, like laws and novels. Um, they have properties such as having been created by Arthur Conan Doyle, so different kinds of properties. So which properties one ascribes to fictional characters, um, if one believes they exist, will have consequences for the accuracy of uh, fiction-related discourse. And this is, raises a philosophical issue because there are a range of incompatible statements that we have some, and we seem to have conflicting intuitions here. seems true to say Sherlock Holmes does not exist. However, it also seems true to say that Sherlock Holmes is a detective, which can't be true if he also doesn't exist. And it's, it also seems to be true Sherlock Holmes is a fictional character created by Arthur Conan Doyle, even though detectives aren't the kinds of things that can be created in that way. Okay, so Minongians will say, so a good account of the accuracy of this account should give paraphrases of, so it was going to have to say some of these statements are false, but we'll give paraphrases and say that, well, what we're really expressing, we have to give an error theory and explain why we tend tempted to think of them as true. So a Minongian will say that the first statement is true, second statement is also true, third statement is false but should, is used to express the true statement that Sherlock Holmes was discovered by Arthur Conan Doyle. Whereas Amy Thomason will say that first, first um, claim is false but should be under understood as expressing the claim there is no such person as Sherlock Holmes. The second claim is also false but is true in the fiction and the third claim is true. Okay, um, so finally let's move to the issue of narrative content. So exactly how broad the scope of things claims that are true in the fiction is depends on how narrative <coughs> content is generated. And the problem here is that a fiction's narrative content typically outstrips its explicit representational content. So here's an example from um, The Prime of Miss Jean, Brodie's and Muriel's Sparks novel about a charismatic Edinburgh school mistress with unorthodox teaching methods. So Muriel Spark writes, all that term, she tried to inspire Eunice to become at least a pioneer missionary in some deadly and dangerous zone of the earth, for it was intolerable to Miss Brodie that any of her girls should not grow up, should grow up not largely dedicated to some vocation. You will end up as a girl guide leader in a suburb like Castorfen, she said warningly to Eunice, who was in fact secretly attracted to this idea and who lived in Castorfen. So, 
what this passage of the story seems to make true in the story is that Miss Brodie is indifferent to Eunice's own desires and ambitions. But this is not explicitly stated in the story. So what makes that true in the story? And we have a range of different accounts. Um, so David Lewis has two alternative accounts. He says that what's true in a story is whatever would be the case um, were the fiction told as known fact, um, or because that imports a lot of facts um, unknown to either author or audience into the na into narrative content. He offers the alternative of whatever would be the case according to the overt beliefs of the maker's community if the fiction were told as known fact. Okay, notice how inclusive that is, how rich narrative content is on that account. An awful lot is part of um, narrative content on Lewis's account. Um, Walton um, is prepared to endorse analogues of Lewis's two accounts to a certain extent, but denies that it's possible to give an adequate general answer to this question, which I think is a problem given that his whole account of what fiction is, is one of Prop's prescribing acts of make-believe. So he's failing to give an adequate solution to the question, or an adequate answer to the question of what it is for a Prop to prescribe an act of make-believe. Um, finally, Greg Curry says that what's true in a fiction is whatever it's reasonable to infer that the work's fictional author believes. So remember, the fictional author is the person in one of these um, qualitative worlds who's telling um, a true story about other people in that world. Okay, um, and I think... No, anyway, I'll leave that. So that's the kind of state of play. What, the reason why Walton denies that it's possible to give an adequate general account of narrative content is that he thinks there are some problem cases that none of the existent accounts of narrative content are able to answer. So I'm going to bring, I'll discuss those problem cases at the end when I come to my own story about narrative content um, and try and help motivate a view that some of you might find quite counterintuitive. But okay, so now I want to, with, with those kind of overview of the state of play in mind, I want to move to my own positive account. Um, Okay, so I don't think that um, fiction making, the act of fiction making, involves either pretend assertion or the performance of invitations to make believe. Rather, I think that fiction making involves the performance of declarations, declarative illocutionary acts. So, declarations are um, a special category of speech act that are special in virtue of affecting changes to the status or condition of their objects simply in virtue of their successful performance. Um, so things like marrying, sentencing, um, they have a... So whereas beliefs have a um, mind-to-world direction of fit, desires have a world-to-mind direction of fit, declarations have a double direction of fit, both mind-to-world and world-to-mind. So take the declaration of marrying. Simply in virtue of su successfully performing the speech act of marrying, one makes it the case that a couple is married. Okay? It affects their status. Now, there are certain conditions that need to be met if one is to perform the act successfully. So, in most places, um, one can't marry two people of the same gender, Fictional characters can't marry people, okay. But so long as those prerequisites are met, the successful of the performance um, of the act automatically affects the the status of the objects in question. So other examples um, include sentencing. Um, simply in vir virtue of sentencing um, someone to two years jail, the judge makes it the case that they are sentenced to jail. Um, simply in virtue of signing this letter of abdication, Edward VIII made it the case that he was no longer king. Simply in virtue of waving a white flag, um, soldiers can make it the case that they have surrendered. Okay. 
So I'm saying that the act of fiction making is like all of these acts. Um, but one respect in which it's not like, in which it's distinguished from all declarations is that I'm going to say that fiction making brings new objects into existence. It creates fictional characters. In this respect, the declaration of fiction making is like the declaration of filing an article of incorporation whereby one creates a corporation. Okay? So there are analogues. Um, so fiction making is a declaration that creates fictional um, characters. But fiction making doesn't just create um, fictional characters, it can also give new properties to existing objects. So once the fictional characters have been created, it can make it the case um, that those characters have certain properties and fiction making can also be used to ascribe certain properties to ordinary people and things. So in War and Peace, um, Tolstoy declares certain things about Napoleon. Okay. So that in a nutshell is what I have to say about the um, act of fiction making. Now I want to go on and explore its consequences for some of these other issues. So let's take the issue of, and, and in so doing I'm going to sort of elaborate on the account too. Let's take the nature of fiction. So what distinguishes act, uh, works of fiction from works of non-fiction? Okay, to answer this question I need to distinguish fiction-making declarations from other sorts of declarations. Um, and Searle makes the point that declarations confer deontic powers. So, for example, sentencing someone to jail confers on the judge or on the police um, the power to imprison that person. Okay. Um, surrendering confers the power to relinquish a fight. Um, so, what I'm proposing is that a work of fiction is a declaration that confers powers of imagination. So someone's performing fiction-making declarations um, confers on us, the readers, the power to imagine things that we were previously not able to imagine. Now, Searle has a different view of fiction than me. He says that in fiction, as in imagination, so fiction and imagination for him are alike, um, in abandoning the world-relating commitment. Okay, so he says that in fiction we have a propositional content without any commitment that it represents with either direction of fit. But my claim is that instead, that fiction-making in virtue of its double direction of fit creates powers of imagination. Okay, so fictions extend our imaginative capacities. Okay, let's look at the consequences for both the semantics of fictional discourse and discourse about fiction. So I take it to be an advantage of my account that I don't have to give um, separate accounts, like, so like Curry does, of the semantics of fictional discourse on the one hand and the semantics of uh, discourse about fiction on the other. Um, I think my account solves the problem of reference in both fictional discourse and discourse about fiction, the declarations whereby fictional characters are created are baptismal acts and they create the possibility of reference in both dis fictional discourse and in discourse about fiction. Okay. All right, so now let's talk about the existence and nature of fictional characters and here I'm going to have to elaborate quite a bit um, on my account. So my claim is that fiction-making involves the performance of declarations. Um, and declarations, according to Searle, are kind of social and institutional facts. So, on his account of institutional reality, social facts are any facts involving collective intentionality. So the members of an orchestra collectively desire to a piece of music. That's a social fact. 
institutional facts are a subgroup of social facts. This social facts arising from, firstly, the collective assignment of function to an object that doesn't have that function intrinsically. Okay, so nothing's a chair intrinsically, for example. Something is only a chair because we collectively assign the function of being a chair to it. But this isn't yet... Being a chair is not yet an institutional fact. Where, so in addition, for something to be an institutional fact, the function assigned has to be a status function. That is, it has to be a function that an object can't perform simply in virtue of its physical structure. So although things aren't intrinsically chairs, being a chair is a function that something can perform because of its physical structure. Whereas, contrast that with being money. Okay, something can't be money simply in virtue of its physical structure. Something can only be money because we collectively agree to assign the function of being money to it. Okay. And so claims that the collective assignment of status functions has the logical form of a declaration, so it has that double direction of fit. Okay. And he claims that institutional reality is comprised of systems of declaration. Okay, so I'm just going to go into that a little bit. Okay, and we can distinguish three types, kinds of declaration, only two of which are relevant to us. Firstly, we have ad hoc declarations where we assign a status function to a particular object. Um, so we might assign the function of being a boundary to a certain set of stones. Then we have constitutive rules, so these emerge from regularities in the assignment of status functions. And these have the form, we make it the case by declaration that for any x that satisfies condition P, x has the status Y and performs the function F in C. So it might be, we make it the case by declaration that for any person who satisfies the condition of being elected, blah, 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 by some people, has, has the status of being President of the United States. Okay. Um, so, for Searle, institutions, social institutions, are simply systems of constitutive rules. That's all that a social institution is. And once we have a social institution, um, we have powers to create what he calls freestanding Y terms. So these are entities where there's function, status functions where there is no X. There's no independently existing object to which that status function is assigned. So as in the creation of a corporation. And he says we, people can create corporations because there are underlying social institutions which have constitutive rules such as following. We make it the case by declaration that for any X that satisfies a certain set of conditions, P, X can create an entity Y with status function F by declaration in C. So this might be, we make it the case by declaration that for any um, article of incorporation that satisfies a certain set of conditions, um, sorry, for any person who satisfies a certain set of conditions, that person can create a corporation by declaration, by signing an article of incorporation in C. And the fact that the institution of, of corporations law includes that constitutive rule enables someone to create the corporation by performing a further declaration. So they bring into existence something that did not previously exist. Um, so... I'm claiming similarly that there is an institution of fiction that consists in a set of constitutive rules and that these rules enable the creation of fictional characters by the performance of a double declaration in the same way as Searle thinks happens for corporations. So, in, on my account, the institution of fiction includes such constitutive rules as we make it the case by declaration 
that for any person who uses a name that does not refer to an independently existing person or object and does so for the purpose of enhancing powers of imagination, our powers of imagination, that person can create an entity Y with the status function of being a fictional character by declaration. Okay, and it's because we collectively accept this rule, all the participants in the institution of fiction collectively accept this rule that authors can create fictional characters. Um, I also think that the institution of fiction includes another constitutive rule that enables authors to attribute or to um, confer properties on fictional characters. And this has something like the form, we make it the case by declaration that for any fictional character that satisfies condition of being attributed certain properties by someone who does so for the purpose of enhancing powers of imagination, that character has the properties attributed to it. Okay, so on my account, I'm, I'm claiming that I'm able to explain how fictional characters come into existence, but what kinds of things are they um, on my account? Well, Searle claims that freestanding Y terms are simply placeholders for a set of actual power relationships among actual people. Okay, so there's nothing metaphysically mysterious here. So a corporation simply consists in a set of power relationships between people. So similarly, I want to say fictional characters consist in power relationships among people. What are these power relationships? Well, there are powers and obligations to stipulate their characteristics. So an author is not only able to confer properties um, on a fictional character, but by um, creating a fictional character, inherit some sort of obligation to tell us something about that character. Powers among authors and audience alike um, to refer to those characters. Um, and also powers and obligations to imagine. So it's our duty as readers of works of fiction to imagine um, the things that the author um, is declaring. Okay, so my claim is that this is a, this, while it's a form of realism and has all the benefits of realism in helping answer questions about um, the semantics of fictional discourse and discourse about fiction, it doesn't have very high ontological costs, okay, because all fictional characters consist in are sets of power relations. Um, I've got a whole bit on how my view is different from Amy Thomason's. I don't know if I should skip that. Is anyone interested in hearing that? Yes. Yes, okay, <laughs> all right. So this is quite similar to a view held by Amy Thomason. So she, too, claims that fictional characters are social entities, and she explicitly draws an analogy between... Um, fictional characters and laws, which is exactly the kind of analogy that I think is very direct. Um, and, and she also claims that her view is ontologically minimal. So what she says in particular is, for there to be a fictional character in a certain situation, all that it takes is that there be a work of literature in which the relevant sorts of pretenseful statements are made involving a fictional name. So she thinks that fiction-making involves pretending to assert. Given such a work of literature, nothing more is required, she says. No extra ingredients are needed to get um, a fictional character. Now, in my view, that's not quite right because something more is required, namely the background institution. So without the system of constitutive rules in which the institution of fiction consists um, we, we couldn't get fictional characters. But Thomason thinks that Searle's account of social ontology is wrong. Um, and so if she's right and Searle's wrong, we'd have obviously have reason to prefer um, her view to mine. But I don't think she has anything very 
um, informative to say about how they're created. So whereas I construe fictional characters as institutional objects, Thomason wants to go the opposite way and explain institutional objects as akin to fictional characters. And here's what she has to say about it. The rules of make-believe, and this is just a direct quote, that we pretend what the book, that what the book says is true, introduce a new fictional character rather than just introducing new fictional facts about extant people or things of certain kinds. Okay, and she wants to say, similarly, the constitutive rules of social institutions introduce abstract artefacts. But I don't think this, is, this isn't really an in, this isn't really an explanation. This is just to reiterate that fictional characters can be created, but not at all to explain how this is possible. And moreover, this purported explanation just introduces more problems because look at the way she characterises the rules of make-believe, that we pretend that what the book says is true, but without um, a prior account, an account of what the semantic cont contribution of a fictional name is prior to the creation of the corresponding fictional character, she can't make appeal to such a rule in explaining how fictional characters come into existence. So my claim is just that while our views of the nature of fictional characters are similar, mine has an explanatory power that hers lacks. Okay, so let's look at the issue of the accuracy of fiction-related discourse. And let's take the first of um, problematic claims. Okay, it seems to us that claims like Sherlock Holmes is a detective are true. On my view... This is false because the property of being a detective is not the kind of property that can be conferred by declaration. You can't make someone a detective simply by saying that they are. Um, okay. So although the constitutive rules of the institution of fiction appeal to the property of being a detective, the property, the conferral of which they enable, is rather the property of being a detective according to the institution of fiction. So what I'm suggesting is that our first claim is actually used to express this claim. When we say, when we think we truly, when we say, and we think we say truly that Sherlock Holmes is a detective, what we are actually expressing is the true claim that Sherlock Holmes is a detective according to the institution of fiction. Um, and we've got an analogy here um, in extra fictional cases. So think about the property conferred by the declaration of judging, of being guilty. So a judge declares you guilty. Um, he makes it the case that you're guilty according to the institution of the law. He can't make it the case that you've committed a crime that you haven't committed. But he can make it the case that According to the institution of the law, um, what one is guilty. So there's a whole set of declarations that are called verdictive declarations. So they're matters of passing a verdict about independent, um, independent about matters about which there are independent matters of fact. So similarly, the Michelin Guide declaring something's Paris Paris's best restaurant is a verdictive declaration. It makes that restaurant the best restaurant, according to the Michelin Guide. I have a little bit of a worry about um, whether I should be modelling fiction-making declarations on verdictive declarations, but if anyone can articulate that to me better than I've been able to articulate it to myself, I'd be grateful. Um, okay, so, but my claim is that the fact that it makes perfect sense to us to distinguish between guilt according to the institution of the law and actual guilt, and we say to someone they're guilty because they're guilty according to the institution of the law, lends psychological support to the paraphrase I'm offering you of Sherlock Holmes is a detective. Okay, the fact that there are such... We clearly talk in this way in extra-fictional um, statements, I think, makes this paraphrase more plausible. Okay, so let's take the second claim, which is that Sherlock Holmes does not exist. Again, 
for me, this is a false claim. Sherlock Holmes does exist, and I will explain to you how he comes into existence. Um, however, what is certainly the case is that fictional characters like corporations are ontologically subjective. That is, their existence is not independent of human mental states. Rather, it depends on the first-person points of view of the participants in the institution of fiction. So just as if you didn't have the various people who participated in a corporation and who accepted the constitutive rules that make up corporations' law, you wouldn't have any corporations. So too, if you didn't have the various participants in the institution of fiction, you wouldn't have fictional characters. So just as I think there is a sense in which we think we can say clear, clearly that a certain corporation does not exist, um, I think we also say Sherlock Holmes does not exist in the same spirit. The claim seems true because we commonly assume that existence requires ontological objectivity. So the paraphrase I'm offering you of this claim is that Sherlock Holmes is not an ontologically objective entity. And this claim uh, is true. And again, I think uh, psychological support for this way of paraphrasing Sherlock Holmes does not exist comes from the fact that we talk about this way about corporations. All right, let's take the statement Sherlock Holmes is a fictional character created by Arthur Conan Doyle. That's just straightforwardly true on my account. And I just want to highlight one what I see as one advantage of my account over accounts like Amy Thomason's, which talk about, want to paraphrase claims like Sherlock, uh, Sherlock Holmes is the detective, rather, um, as being true in the fiction. For me, claims such as Sherlock Holmes is a detective are true according to the institution of fiction. So consider a statement like, Sherlock Holmes is a better detective than Hercule Poirot. That is an interfictional statement, so it compares ca fictional characters from two different or from different works of fiction. If, if the only way of accounting for the apparent truth of such statement is to, is to subsume them under an in-the-fiction operator, because there's no single fiction in which this statement is true, one has real difficulty um, in explaining one, why one might think this is a true claim. <clears throat> so un I think that unlike the property of being a detective according to a particular fiction, the property of being a detective according to the institution of fiction can explain the semantics of interfictional discourse. So while the claim that Sherlock Holmes is a better detective than Hercule Poirot is literally false, the paraphrase claim Sherlock Holmes is a better detective than Hercule Poirot according to the institution of fiction may well be true. Okay. All right, so now I just want to explain what I have to say about the issue of narrative content. And I think this is, well, I'll leave it for you to decide, but um, perhaps the least intuitively appealing aspect of my account. Um, all right, but I hope to um, at least provide some motivation for it. <coughs> so my account... A work's narrative content, what's true in a work of fiction or according to the story, encompasses all and only the content of the declarations that its maker performs in producing it. Um, now, it's very important to note that this is not equivalent to claiming that a work's narrative content simply consists in its explicit representational content. Okay, that would only be the case if declarations all, always had to be performed literally. But it's clear that declarations can be performed indirectly. So I can indirectly... So many ways of giving you something. To give you something is to perform a declaration. I make it that, the case that that thing is now yours simply by successfully performing the act of giving. And I could give you something, I could give you my pen by saying, here, I give you my pen, and that is literally performing that act. Um, but I could also give you my pen by saying, here, I hate black ink. And I would have succeeded indirectly in giving you my pen. Okay, so it's very important 
to um, see that declarations can be performed indirectly. Um, and giving is a good example. And indirectly performed declarations, what, what declaration one succeeds in performing indirectly, it's determined by intention. So Strawson claims that what, what declaration one performs, or one can perform a declaration, so I can, I can give Paloma my pen um, by having a communicative intention to affect the course of the relevant institutional practice, in this case the institutional practice of giving, um, and a communicative intention to alter the status or condition of some object associated with that practice. So I want to alter the status of my pen, what is that? previous to my declaration of my pen, and uptake guarantees that I've successfully performed the act. So so long as Paloma gets it, she gets that in saying I, don't, I hate black ink, I'm giving her my pen, I have succeeded in giving her my pen. Okay, so let's go back to one of our problematic cases, a Miss Jean Brodie case. I've said it's true in the fiction that Miss Brodie is indifferent to Eunice's own ambitions and desires. What makes, and I, I'm saying that my story can account for this being true in the fiction, um, what makes it true in the fiction that Miss Brodie is indifferent to Eunice's own desires is that in producing um, the work of fiction, Muriel Spark indirectly declares that this is the case. Okay, she performs an indirect declaration. It's her intention to communicate um, the fact that uh, Miss Brodie's indifference, and we get it. When we read the story, we sense her indifference. We grasp her indifference. Okay, so why do I think this account of narrative content is uh, counterintuitive? Notice how much more minimal it is than something like Lewis's account. So Lewis says that one of, on his strongest account, what's true in the fiction is whatever would be true were it told as known fact. Um, so an awful lot of things will be true in any fiction, such as broccolis being nutritious will be true in the prime of Miss Jean Brodie. Okay? All kinds of stuff is imported from the real world. So Walton, um, Walton kind of offers an alternative characterisation of what is in essence Lewis's own view, which says make, make the world of the fiction as much like um, the real world as, as is compatible with what's explicitly represented. So we import an awful lot of stuff about the real world into the content of the narrative content of the fiction. Whereas that is not at all the case on the account I'm providing here. What's true in the fiction is actually very minimal. It's just the content of the declarations that the author performs. Actually, I'm going to take my pen back. <laughs> Introducing the work. In the so, sorry? In the it was. It was. I wasn't. <laughs> okay, so, what, so I need to show you that my account has some advantages because it might look too minimal. And, and so now I want to raise the problems that Walton, the reasons why Walton thinks it's not possible to give an adequate general account um, of, of narrative content. So he takes um, this thing from a, this passage from Othello. Um, uttered, these words are uttered by Othello. Othello says in Othello, had it pleased heaven to try me with affliction, had they rained all kinds of sores and shames on my bare head, steeped me in poverty to the very lips, given to captivity me in my utmost hopes, I should have found in some place of my soul a drop of patience. But alas. Okay. And Walton says, How did Othello, a Moorish general and hardly an intellectual, managed to come up with such superb verse on the spur of the moment and went immensely distraught. Apparently he's to be credited with an almost unbelievable naturally, natural, literary natural literary flair. Okay. So it is a consequence of views such as Lewis's that it will be true in Othello that Othello is a great poet. That's just would be the case, what would be the case um, were um, the story as it's represented as were things as the story represents as the play represents them as being. 
Okay, and it's a, it's a problem for all the kind of very inclusive accounts of narrative content. Another good example, so I've stuck to uh, uh, sorry, linguistic fiction here, but if you, like Walton, want to say that there are pictorial fictions too, another example is that demonstrates the problem very well is um, Leonardo's The Last Supper. So in The Last Supper, all the diners are seated on one side of the table. Why are they seated on one side of the table? Are they watching TV? Does one of them have terrible halitosis such that no one wants to sit next to him? What's going on? Okay. And on all the kind of inclusive accounts of narrative content, these are very sensible questions to be asking because they will tell us what's, what's part of the narrative content of the story. And so Walton calls these silly questions and there's really a clear sense in which they are silly questions to be asking. They're kind of, someone who asks these questions is just not getting it in some important sense. Um, but not, nevertheless, they arise in the context of lots and lots of fictions. So consider also uh, works of fiction set in non-English-speaking um, countries in which all the characters speak in English all the time. Okay. Are we to assume that everyone in that country, although it's not their first language, has a perfect grasp of the English language? No, that would be a silly way to interpret the work. Rather, we're to take it that they're speaking whatever the languages they speak in that country, but we're reading it in English. Um, okay, so I think I can solve this question. I can over, uh, solve this problem. I can explain why these silly questions are silly questions. And the way I propose to do it is this. Fiction makers typically produce works of fiction with both what you might call illocutionary and perlocutionary aims. So... I've been talking about the performance of illocutionary acts. These include declarations, but also acts, other, all other acts that one performs in speaking or writing certain words, so such as asserting or warning or marrying, sentencing. Okay, we've heard a lot about illocutionary acts today. But in addition, there are... So Austin distinguishes from illocutionary perlocutionary acts. These are acts that one performs by speaking and they concern the consequences or effects of speaking. So I could insult you or impress you. Okay. Notice that um, perlocutionary, unlike illocutionary acts, don't require communicative intentions. Right. I can insult you uh, without intending to, or I can impress you, I can fail to impress I can intend to impress you and fail to, I can um, impress you without intending to. But nonetheless, often the way in which we express ourselves is governed by the perlocutionary effects, um, perlocutionary acts we aim to perform. Um, and remember I've said on my account, what's true in a fiction is simply um, everything that fiction maker, the author, declares true in that fiction in producing it. Um, now, in performing a deck, not all of the explicit representational content of a work of fiction need be used in the performance of declarations. Okay. Um, sometimes, the reason why authors include certain representational content um, in a fiction is not because they're trying to declare anything, but because they're trying to um, achieve, perform some perlocutionary act. So in the case of... Uh, Othello, Shakespeare is trying to give us aesthetic pleasure. Okay, he's trying to have, hoping that his words will have the effect of inducing aesthetic pleasure in us. In the case of the Last Supper, um, Da Vinci is trying to achieve the perlocutionary, perform the perlocutionary act of enabling us to see everybody's face. Um, in the case of the story set in a a non-English speaking country in which everyone speaks English, the author is trying to make their words comprehensible to English readers. Okay, so these are all perlocutionary aims. Um, so what explicit representational content a work has is determined not just by what de declarations uh, the author wants to perform uh, in producing that work, but also what perlocutionary acts he or she wants um, to perform. So, 
when a work's explicit representational content is used in the performance of a declaration, the content of the declaration need not match the explicit representational content. Often the content of the declaration might be a lot less determinate than explicit representational content. So if we go back to Othello, the declaration that Shakespeare seems to be performing here is to, uh, is to declare that Othello uttered words uh, with a meaning much like the words he represents him as uttering, but he's not declaring that he uttered precisely those words. Okay, so it's not true in the fiction that Othello uttered precisely those words, therefore it's not true in the fiction that Othello is a great poet. Similarly, um, in painting The Last Supper, da Vinci um, <coughs> did not declare that all the diners sat on one side of the table. Um, rather, he declared that they sat in some kind of convivial relation to one another. Therefore, it's not true in the fiction um, that anyone has terrible halitosis, for example. Okay, so while, how do I account, how does my very minimal construal um, <coughs> of narrative content account for the richness of our experience of fictions. Okay, so the worry is that you need to import a lot more into narrative content if you're going to explain the actual nature of our experience of fiction, which is one of engagement with the rich world. And I think this richness is a consequence of two things. Firstly, that many fiction-making declarations are indirectly performed, um, as I've already argued they can be, but secondly, in order to... So remember, Strawson thinks that uptake is essential to the successful performance of a declaration. Paloma has to understand that I'm giving her my pen um, if I'm going to succeed in giving it to her. And to, to, su to succeed in identifying what I'm trying to do, Paloma is relying on all kinds of background information about the fact that this pen probably has black ink, um, whatever, information about the real world that helps her work out what declaration I'm performing. Similarly, when audiences, in order for audiences to identify the declarations that fiction makers or that authors rather perform, um, they need to appeal to an awful lot of background knowledge about the real world. They rely on knowledge about the real world to identify the declarations that are being performed um, and that appeal to real-world information is, is what the rich engagement um, with works of fiction consists in, I think. Um, it doesn't follow that these background assumptions are part of narrative content. There's something we... Background assumptions, background knowledge we need to have if we are to understand and engage with fictions, um, but they're not um, imported into narrative content. Okay, so in conclusion, I've provided you with what's pretty much just a sketch of an account of the <coughs> act of fiction-making that I think does several things. Firstly, gives us an account of the nature of fiction. Okay, um, fictions are declarations that confer powers of imagining. It gives us a unified semantics for fictional names in both fictional discourse and discourse about fiction. It explains how fictional characters are created and what sorts of things they are. They are placeholders for power relations, actual power relations between actual people. Um, it explains our pre-theoretical intuitions regarding the truth of fiction-related discourse. So lots of the things we claims about fiction that we, oh, and fictional claims that we're tempted to think of as true, I said are actually false, but I've tried to provide plausible paraphrases um, for them that account for our tendency to think of them as true. And finally, yields an account of narrative content that can explain why Walton's silly questions are silly. Thanks. <laughs>